You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with your hosts, Andy Grant and Apio Hunter. Real Men Feel is all about encouraging men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to opening up discussions that most men aren't having, but you certainly don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel podcast is produced live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern for your growth and enjoyment. You can find more information about the Real Men Feel movement at realmenfeel.org. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and at facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. This is a weekly program, and your comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in the Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Laughter United. <laughs> welcome to another episode of Real Men Feel. I am your leading man this evening, Andy Grant. I am a transformation coach, author, and speaker. This is uh, episode number 61. You can discover past and future shows of Real Men Feel via our time machine. No, we don't have a time machine. I mean, it's a website. So go to the website, realmenfeel.org, and you can learn about past and future shows. Uh, you can also discover our Facebook group and coaching opportunities. Lots of good stuff is there, our blog. And today, this week's episode of Real Men Feel, we are exploring hope, which is always useful. But in our current rather chaotic times, uh, politically, socially, economically, um, livingly, is there an all-encompassing term? <laughs> no. um, hope may be something that we are really all in some extra need of right now. So without further ado, let me introduce my ever-hopeful friend and co-host, Mr. Apio Hunter. Hey, hey, hey. It's always good to be here. Well, good. That's why you keep coming back. <laughs> That's exactly why. It's always <laughs> the highlight of my week, so I love it. <laughs> cool. So again, I mentioned uh, tonight we're talking about, about finding hope. And our, our guest is author and co-host of Divine Union TV, a really cool YouTube channel, Vito Mucci. And Vito calls himself a psychological theorist. So welcome aboard. Hello there. Hi. And where are you coming to us from? Where in the world I am in the Hudson Valley of New York, via Sedona, via California, via Maryland, Florida. I've lived, I've kind of coast jumped back and forth pretty much most of my life. Awesome. Awesome. And we're going to explore, uh, in, in our early conversations, you talked about the spending eight years at rock bottom and yeah. that's where you really learned about hope. So that's where we're going to yeah. dive into. Yeah. <laughs> so in case, uh, if anyone's, I'm sure, well, I should say I imagine most people have hit some sort of level of rock bottom. Yeah. Yeah. I know I have. Um, thank God I don't believe I've spent eight years consistently there, but uh, yeah, we'll find out. But I do want to share before we get going kind of how, how we met. And there, there's a private Facebook group, um, mm -hmm. Real Men Feel, a private Facebook group on Facebook, uh, coincidentally, right? And um, Vito got added to it last month, early April, and posted a couple videos and it, they, the content hit me up. I just, who is this? What, what's this content? What is this guy? 
and uh, <laughs> come in. I like to people get engaged before they share things, but it, it's share, you know, it was, uh, anyway, it, it was, it just triggered me. Um, and I knew it was my stuff. And I was like, what was this about? Well, this is my group. Who's this guy coming in sharing stuff? I want the nerve of this. Um, so I reached out to, to Vito and I told him that I was really triggered and upset and this, and I wanted to open this door because I bet this would lead to a fantastic show at some point. Yeah. Um, and we had a quick conversation and you were just the, you know, the calmest, nicest. You're like, well, someone managed to the group. I thought you wanted my stuff. So it was really that you, you didn't join it yourself. Someone put you in there. Right. So, yeah. So it was neat that we were both operating from different assumptions. Yeah. Um, and again, that what I, Real men feel is encouraging men to feel whatever's showing up, right? It's not just um, it's not just Andy's happy place. It's not just a place of depression. It's whatever shows up. So I really I want to honor you, Vito, for being brave enough to. I, I I don't know how harshly I might have come off in text. I think by the time we spoke, I was pretty calm. But you know, when it's just words in the screen, it's so easy to add your own emotions and perceptions too. But it was very easy to translate for you in particular. Um, I'm I'm pretty good about turning um, text into like kind of a heart conversation. I can pretty much tell when someone's heart is there or isn't because um, if it seems like the words are tough to type, if you're ha if then that means you're being vulnerable and honest and so i could sense that you were like kind of padding through br br bringing your um your reaction to me and that was automatically triggered me into a spot of you know deeper calm and okay i probably stepped on this guy's toes and i didn't mean to so i'll just say that and then then we'll work from there <laughs> So yeah, we've had uh, some chat conversations and some conversations before the show. Um, so anyway, I'm really psyched for tonight. I'm glad you're here. Um, and uh, I welcome you to post lots of stuff now too. <laughs> so, uh, and this is a question that Apio had before as we were chatting. So let's start, like, what is a psychological theorist? Psychological theorist. Ooh. Okay, so... Um, one of the little stories I like that is kind of an analogy to how I see myself is that there was um, someone in India who was kind of living in away from cities, not cult, not schooled in their culture. And he like happened across all these different math books. He, and he was like a math genius, but he was outside of the standardized um, curriculum. And as a result, when he finally was brought into the fold, you know, 30 years of after he had really started just geeking out on math, he came in with an entire new set of um, ideas that brought a lot of elegance to things that were complex in mathematics for many years. And so what do you call him? Do you call him a mathematician? Do you call him, you know, a savant? I, I think a lot of those... I think a lot of those, while accurate, may not get at it. He was a math theorist. That was what he just loved. He did it. It doesn't matter if he was schooled in it. It doesn't matter if anyone was teaching him. You know, all of those things kind of fell behind his creativity in the field. And instead of, instead of you know, discussing 
saying, oh, my mom was a therapist and she trained me and I watched all these other videos and I did all, I just love psychology. I've loved it since I was 10 years old. And I've been through a lot of psychologically stressful situations from all different angles, um, either going through them firsthand or secondhand or helping other people through them. I've, I've just been like shoulder deep in psychology since really I was very, very young. And so instead of trying to describe myself through accolades or degrees or anything else, this is just what I do. I am constantly, every day, all day, theorizing how the human mind works and how consciousness functions within it. It is just, it's more who I am than something that I've done or achieved. So psychological theorist is someone who is constantly discovering and trying to map psychological reality. That's what I'd say. That is fascinating. Now, the the mathematical theorist that you were referring to, that wasn't Srinivas Ramanujan, was it? I think it may have been. Okay. That name's very familiar. <laughs> yeah, because when you started describing him, I'm like, oh, this sounds so familiar. Yeah, I may have been a little off on some of the details, <laughs> you know, as far as the years and where he was. Pretty went. close, pretty close. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's so fascinating that the curiosity, the fascination that you have has led you down this path. And, I mean, I, I'm just drawn to that whole idea, concept of, Curiosity for curiosity's sake, discovery for right. discovery's sake, psychology for that very, very purpose of just let's see where this goes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was hungry for it from just a very young age. And that, you know, during the the years when I was at my bottom, it didn't go away. I was just trying to figure that out too. It, uh, it never left me. Like I was getting tables and going to school for philosophy. The psychology was still at the forefront of everything I was doing. So, so did you, so you didn't really study anything formally per se, as far as degree wise or anything. Right? I, I went to school for psychology for a little bit. I took okay. classes and uh-huh. I, I was lucky enough to um, have a really wide range of teachers. Like the guy who taught me social psych had been an ex secret service member. Uh-huh. So his thing was reading people and reading situations and faces. Yeah. And so I had him and then I had um, one of Maslow's students mm. who was like 82 when he was my teacher and I had him like three semesters in a row. And so his like idea of health and like goodness of fit, like he just wrote it in huge letters on the board, goodness of fit and made sure like just to grind it into everybody's heads that it was this huge deal that you may not see in anybody else's classroom. And so I was lucky with that. But um, as far as I never got past, uh, you know, grad, I was never upper grad grad level. I did, I did the upper grad stuff at home, like you know, reading Alice Miller and John Bradshaw and going through Family Systems and mm-hmm. all of that high end stuff. I really did kind of on my own. And did, did this interest that you said mentioned since age ten was yeah. it curiosity driven or your own kind of sort of personal pain driven? Like what what got a ten year old interested? <clears throat> Well, you know, I, I, I'm curious about that because I think 10 was when I started to have my socialization anxiety and my brother had had, um, had an issue with cancer. So I was definitely awake enough to be freaked out about my life. But um, when I was in fifth grade, I had mono and my mom kept me home. Well, I had to stay home for like two months. So what was I doing? I was watching really just two people. I was watching Joseph Campbell and John Bradshaw. So a mythologist who brings 
like he was taught by Jung, so he's nat naturally like a psychologist first and a mythologist second. And you know, John Bradshaw, who was into family systems, and John Bradshaw was really good about describing um, relationship dynamics, especially within a family or in a set of people, and how any movement would trigger everybody else. And I started like. I started just geeking out on how one person being one way meant another person had to fill another role. And it became this wildly energizing pattern that I saw wherever I went. And I was, it was really energizing. Cool. And so you're an energized fifth grader, you're home yeah. taking all this stuff in. Um, so let's, uh, let's dive into the, the dark and dirty. Uh, when, <laughs> so what prompted the, your period of rock bottomness? Uh, you know, I, I think about it almost each time I think about it, it's, I come up with a different way that I got there, mm -hmm. but I think I had done most everything that I had kind of set out to do and it wasn't, it didn't make me happy. It wasn't enough. And uh, so now I have all this knowledge and I have all this, like I did an album in Los Angeles. I was doing great in college. I had had, you know, girlfriends and was a published poet and had finished a screenplay. I did all these things and they, it wasn't enough. And, you know, I was the expectation that it was going to be enough and having that disappointment, like really crippled me. It like took my knees out. And, you know, I had other pain that would surface in that, in that area from either, you know, empathic stuff or stuff with my family and my brother or whatever that, you know, was always there waiting. And so when I didn't have this natural tie into this expectation, like if I work out, I'm going to have, I'm going to be happy. Well, at some point, like when you work out and it doesn't happen, then all of the things that you are covering up with working out start bleeding through. And that's, mm. it just took me under, you know, I, I had, um, I think the, the spot where I got in tr trouble was I started, um, my grades started dipping and I was working too hard at a band and I wasn't working. So I started like doing meth, which is, you know, yeah, that, helps everything. Add, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Add a couple days to your week to do your projects. That, that is how you get through school. That's a responsible way to do it, except it makes you insane, which um, <laughs> is why I dropped out of school about, you know, six months later. I did bring my GPA up though for one semester. Um, Yay. Yeah. So that, so, you know, I brought it up and then dropped out of school. Yeah. And so here I am with school uprooted, my hopes for a band uprooted. And, you know, I didn't have anything to bring into a relationship with yet. Like I wanted to be in a relationship so badly. I love, love, I'm such a romantic, mm. but I knew for a fact that I wasn't a capable partner yet. And so what to do? And turned out that what I needed to do was just just bail and fail at everything. So I got off of speed, started drinking, had terrible breakups. Then I went to AA and stayed with my dad for a couple of years. And that was suicidal and terrible. And so throughout this whole mess, um, I'm learning about this psychology of failing and overcoming adversity and adjusting to life situations and adjusting to um, failed expectations and realizing just the size of the trauma um, coming into adulthood, thinking it's going to be a certain way. And then just really life is, 
pretty adept at beating us down. And I mean, I remember multiple different times where the world wasn't what I expected it to be. Like, oh, I'm going to be home and safe now. No, no, you're not safe now. And so I was always safe with alcohol. So as long as I was always safe with alcohol, I just went that direction. So I could always be safe. And, you know, I really needed that safety. And I know that in some ways alcohol saved my life because I got safety there that I couldn't get anywhere else. And it was the safety of, excuse me. So as I'm going through it, why do I need this safety? What is so important about it? And I realized I could control it. I could control the way I felt for an evening. And I also realized that control, I was mourning not having that anywhere else. There's nothing I could do in any area of my life that would guarantee that I felt a certain way about myself or with anybody else. There was nothing that guaranteed um, people would respond well to me. There was nothing that guaranteed me attention. And so to have something that I could control, it showed me how powerful that, that psychological connection is. And showed me all the different areas where I would run to it. So when do I need control? Well, I need control whenever I'm having an emotional reaction I can't handle, which as someone who has, who's, who has PTSD and is bipolar, that's throughout the day, like three, four, five times. That's often. So I also learned how powerful emotion was to making me want that control over there and be able to be able to move myself from a spot of discomfort into a spot of comfort. Mm-hmm. And so finding all of these things out over years helped me develop um, ideas that I'd had when I was a kid about the nature of free will and choice and um, psychological health and decision-making, things that had never been clear to me before and things that were large motivating factors for the way that I believed everybody behaves. And so upon experiencing the true horror of just one uncomfortable emotion, um, I started to pay much more attention to how an emotion can arise and move through the system without, without causing like someone to drink without causing me to go get wasted. And what I came up with was that there's got to be a process, a way of moving, holding on to the emotion and feeling it so that it doesn't get repressed. Because if I repress it, I'll just drink later. That's just what that means. Right. I'm going to repress things for three hours and then drink for the next six. Like that's fine. Sometimes like that was how I worked up until I couldn't really work anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, but that didn't, that didn't um, make me any healthier and it didn't give me any tools. So you know, being at the bottom and being buried by every single emotional reaction that I was having um, made me very humbly respect the emotional matrix in the human body because I was just, I was ass kicked by it. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So really during this whole time, you ended up being your own test subject. That's really the case. So I thought emotions weren't as much of a big deal as they were. I thought they were something we work through or they're, you know, I thought of them as uh, like, clo- like clothing, like you'd wear it and then you take it off like you, whenever you wanted to instead of um, it being so, like a, more like a momentary tattoo that you had to keep changing all the time because it's, it's, uh, 
it's really a part of who you are and you can't, you can't behave as if it's not there. It's always on you. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, that really, uh, learning that got me into the psychological theorizing and trying to understand the soul better, trying to understand consciousness better and learning about the different aspects of consciousness, like observer consciousness, which I love. And we just did a video on, but just the idea that you're watching an emotional reaction and then watching how your mind is trying to run from it. Like it's, you know, I'm like, Oh, I'm scared. And I'm like, okay, so I'm having a fear reaction. And then I'm like, okay, now it's time to get out of there. Now, 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 get, go, 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 go. And like being able to slow that whole process down, watch that, that deep desire, that impulsivity and compulsion to remove ourselves from any discomfort and slowly learning how to just stop it from dominating. Um, so when I came out of my eight years at the bottom, I didn't go cold Turkey because I knew it wasn't, it wasn't just the alcohol. It was me being able to deal with my daily life. And, you know, I was living in Sedona with my mom and I had zero responsibilities. I, all I had to do was like go for a walk every day. And that was a self-imposed discipline thing. And so I tried to get like sober hours each day. Like, okay, I'm going to have three hours today. I'm going to have four hours tomorrow. And some days I wouldn't have any. Some days I'd wake up and just be, I'd be anxiety ridden and like shaking, waking up in the morning and I'd start drinking then. Like I didn't win every day, but I learned where the battle was. And it took me years to get, you know, to sundown. It took me two years. And that was, I have so much, um, humility before the human body and so much respect for the amount of power that it has in relation to the human mind that's trying to translate it and make sense of it. And I understand that people who are having difficulty managing that, I understand what they're going through. It's not, um, it's not a trivial relationship. It is, it's much more like, um, befriending a wild horse than it is a dog mm. for a while i thought of it like you know a rabid dog like i'm gonna try to no because it's bigger than you too and so you got a pissed off horse in your house <laughs> and like that's the way i started thinking like okay mm. my first thing to do every day like if i'm gonna try and manage myself into more sobriety is i have to get this horse tame and calm so every day i focus on my emotional reality. I pet it down. I relax. I ask myself constantly throughout the day, am I okay? Am I hungry? Am I tired? Am I taking care of myself? And so the amount of work, the amount of work it took to get from buried by my internal emotional reactivity to having, you know, just being alongside it, you know, not me mastering it, just me having a fair relationship with it where I can be like, Hey, can you chill out a minute? I need to do some work here. Like I need allowing it really. Yeah. Just, just, um, just allowing it to be, um, it allowing me to do what I need to do and me allowing it to talk to me whenever it needs to. So to be, to, to get onto a friendship basis with my own emotions took me two years. And of course I wasn't doing this with any, I had a psychiatrist who was working um, IET therapy with me, but it wasn't mental conscious stuff. It was, 
just releasing tra trauma from the body, which was super, super helpful, really, really helped. But the mental aspect, having to engage something within myself that I couldn't control um, on a daily basis, like mm -hmm. for hours, um, it was work that I think led to where I am now. And the, mm -hmm. all the psychological theories that I've come up with are really more of an offset of that than anything else I've done in my life. Yeah. I always find our best experiences are our best learning, our best growth. Your, you know, I, I imagine your best theories come from your experience, not someone else's books. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> I'm really interested by your, your take on how you saw alcohol as your way to control things. Yeah. And my, when I abused alcohol, um, I would consciously, you know, get drunk alone so that I could feel. I couldn't, there was a period I couldn't cry unless I was drunk. So in my right. mind, I was think I th I thought I was like I'm drinking to get out of control, but now I can kind of see. Well, no, how I just say I'm using this alcohol to control my release. It right, and that you know again, like crying is so healthy. I if I could have like drank to cry, I would have done that too. Like, would have loved Right. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, during that time of self-discovery and analysis and, and, and looking hard at yourself and creating that relationship with your emotions, was there anything in what you were reading that stuck out with you that really kind of helps kind of guide you along that path? Not during, um, not during that time. It was all before. I didn't read from when I was 20. I read zero things from when I was 25 until mm -hmm. I was about 32. I didn't read, okay. read zero things. Mm -hmm. um, I had read like a Dostoevsky book at 25. I read The Idiot and I was like, okay, I don't need to read anymore because that's just, that's just the end of me in reading. Because <laughs> it was such a great book and it was so, you know, emotionally purging. I was like, nothing's mm -hmm. gonna close to it. So the, the stuff that I more thought of was, because um, I was doing a lot of, like theory kept me engaged like trying to figure out what would happen next and trying to figure out what i could control and couldn't and a lot of me kept coming back to something i read in college in epistemology class for philosophy by charles sanders purse and charles sanders purse is the father of pragmatism but most people don't know that because what happened was he taught pragmatism then william james came in and retaught it incorrectly but more popular and, and purse was like um you got my theory wrong and william james was like no i don't it's like this he's like no it's not like that <laughs> that's not what it is and then purse you know moved to france and opened a brothel and that was it Boom. but but purse taught purse um the things that purse wrote made me leave philosophy because i was like oh well, these were the answers i was looking for in philosophy mm -hmm. and they're actually psychological and now i don't need philosophy anymore Hmm. So he, he talked about the nature of belief and doubt and how it's not something that we decide on there. It is a physical manifestation of a state of being that is beyond our, our super conscious mind. It is, it is something that we are putting off as a vibration. And he was saying this, you know, long before anybody else talked about vibration, but he said, if you are not in a state of belief, you're in a state of doubt, which leads to a state of inquiry. And he mapped this whole amazing thing where just, for the first time, the light bulb went on. Deciding that you're not going to feel a certain way is its irrelevant to the way the human mind works. Be positive. Think positive thoughts. You may be able to do it sometimes. Can't do it others. Because the nature of belief is that it has 
specific standards that you have to meet as a conscious mind to be able to even activate it. And a lot of us who are experiencing PTSD, depression, bipolar, all this stuff, we don't have control. Almost all of psychology is built around the idea of controlling the mind. Mm. Well, if you start with that's impossible, then the entire field changes a great deal. And instead of finding ways to control, we have to find ways to influence and harmonize with what's going on inside the mind. And so finding, you know, the mythic nature of dealing with my emotion on a daily basis and Mm -hmm. understanding looking at it from the point of view of someone who was in uncharted territory every day and who was going to find out new ways to lose. Like uh, Edison said, I found a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. I found a thousand ways to fail at controlling my emotion before I was like, maybe controlling my emotion isn't, maybe that's not the thing. (laughs) Maybe, maybe there's something else going on here. Directed or something. And then I started having the emotion and instead of battling it, you know, like with my paw, cause I'm right, you know, doggy paddling, um, instead of battling it, I would say, okay, well, I'm just going to sit here and listen to it and see what I can do. If I can allow it, make it more comfortable, change my behavior and see if that in the future changes the type of emotion that I have in this situation. And that was how I ended up changing my alcoholism from something that was completely destructive to something that wasn't. And it was knowing in advance what my triggers were Mm -hmm. and understanding, expecting, allowing, and processing through them as fast as I could. So I just got really good. It's like um, something chokes you, don't eat it, right? Like something's going to choke you or make you sick, don't eat it. This wasn't like that. This was more like taking in a toxin and getting sick. And then taking it in again and finding out how to get less sick. Like, okay, so if I swallow this poison and I exercise, the toxin gets out of my system faster. Okay. So if I swallow this poison and, you know, I exercise and I sit in a steam room, then the toxin gets out of my system faster. And so I found all of these different ways to work with negative emotions instead of denying them. I just allow them to basically swallow them like poison and... I got better and better at processing the toxins. And so it's not, you know, it's not immunity to emotion. Mm -hmm. It is, well, it's not immunity. It is a tolerance that I built over time to my highly reactive state, which Mm -hmm. I'm still, I'm still highly reactive. I mean, really, I'm very highly reactive. It's just, I'm also really confident um, about my ability to manage my behavior and process that reactivity before it changes my, before it changes who I am into something else. Yeah. Is, is, is that the beginning of hope, right? Not battling emotions? Is- for, for, for me, um, for me it was because the second I got, it was the first time in my entire life, I'd taken a step forward in it, really anything. My entire life, I'd been just taking shots and taking a step backwards. Each thing I tried wouldn't work. So I tried to control. I tried to, you know, abstain. I tried, it just didn't work. I was more and more miserable. But the first time I started allowing the emotion to just flow through me and eat me up and be in pain and allow that to be the case. And then I would outlast it and then I'd feel better afterwards. 
the first time that happened, it was like, it was like as good as taking a drug, you know, 10 years before it was like, Oh my God, I'm free of the emotion. But wait, I didn't have to cheat. I didn't have to repress it. I didn't have to, I didn't have to take anything. And I didn't have the same rush from being in control because I certainly wasn't in control. It stayed as long as it wanted to. But I was like, oh, well, there's a light at the end of that tunnel now. And yeah, the tunnel is really long. Mm -hmm. But I like that feeling. Did you find that? And so my experience when when I go to the negative emotion, when I let it be felt, Mm -hmm. it always lasts shorter than I feared it would. Right. It's always shorter. Okay. So it's like resist, resist, resist. And I can resist all day. If I just let it roll me over, then it's like 20 minutes. Yeah. Right. Once you're through, like, oh, it was, it wasn't that bad. What's the big deal? But when you're in it, it's like, fuck, this right. sucks. <laughs> and I, I totally, I totally think that, um, you know, a lot of the, the training that's and the programming that's in our mind, and I don't know that it's social. I think it's a, backed up by social programming, but I think the egoic mind is used to us living in caves. So if there was emotional distress 50,000 years ago because things were different than they were supposed to be, that was a sign that, you know, our cave was going to collapse and that was bad. And so our ego is like, oh, we got to fix something. We have to stay in this state of emer- emergency and it pumps adrenaline through us and keeps re-triggering that cycle. And I think, you know, that the ego is just, the egoic mind is just um, inaccurate now. It doesn't know that we're not in danger. And it's, very, it's very black and white. It's, it's a yes or no function. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's not, it doesn't, there's no grayscale. There's no, hey, let's talk to the frontal lobes and see if they agree about what a reaction you're having. And I think that, uh, that for me, um, I didn't get that for a, for a while. I didn't understand the, sophistication of that relationship and how powerful it was until, you know, close to the back end of the drinking and the bottom that I was in. It's almost like, you know, the, the emotions have always been there. The emotions have always been what they've been, but somehow our brains have never quite been able to process them, you know, especially as society has progressed and advanced so, so quickly now, our brains just have simply not been able to catch up with how certain emotions that are surfaced, depending on the situation in our modern world, it just goes straight to fear. And then fear is like, bad, and all the stuff (laughs) just goes, you know, spewing on out. (laughs) Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, what you're saying. It's interesting because when you talk about you know, the embracing emotion, going deep, deep into it, there's something that I actually tried for, for a number of years myself when I was going through my own awakening and so forth, which I, interestingly enough was called the Sedona Method, and it was born there in Sedona. And one of the exercises is diving deep into that very unwelcome emotion yeah. and just allowing it to just go right through. So, so very fascinating that you should bring that up and discover that because, yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, I, I was in Sedona when I discovered it. So that's oh, funny. How funny. <laughs> yeah. That was funny. where I was. <laughs> yeah. And it, I, I loved it. And, and that was part of, you know, what I found, I thought was very much a foundational aspect of just me, me being able to welcome my own emotions and be aware of that natural flowing state. Exactly. Yeah. Let them come. Let them go. They're going to come and go no matter what. So, so, yeah. so the, the, the key to beginning a personal turnaround to, to discovering hope is giving up that, that clutching for control. Yeah. And, and so admitting like, all right, this is uncontrollable. But if I, go, if I allow myself to flow with the uncontrollable flow, it's easier than I feared it was when I was trying to control it. 
Yeah. That, that is the thing that we can do is we can allow that surrender and allow the frustration. And, and, you know, I think there's an extra added component, especially as a guy, I know I felt humiliated mm-hmm. by, it, by my emotion, by my inability to, to control it. And I know I can see it in other men that are having, I can see it. Um, I talk with a lot of, you know, women about their, the men that are in their lives and how they recoil from certain situations. And I have such a hard time explaining how truly painful, like guilt and humiliation, not being able to control ourselves is like, it's like dying. It is so powerful. Um, It's, it's, it shouldn't be that powerful, but it is. And it's kind of humiliating that it's as powerful as it is. And, you know, I think like step one in the 12 steps is admitting that something's not controllable. And I take that, you know, when it comes to emotion, we're talking about something that's not controllable that we have to yield to in order to even start to be able to work with it. Yeah. A recent show we did was all about fear. And so we have fear of our own emotions. And for me, I found, wow, I didn't realize it till the show, but I had a lot of shame. So beyond humiliation, which is kind of, for me, shame is like harsher humiliation or right. my brain. Well, it's, it's consistent humiliation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, had that about my emotions. Right. So yeah, I totally hear you. Yeah. It, um, and in fact, Lori just put it into the, the chat here. That is the vow. You feel like you will die and it creates shame and guilt. Yeah. It's, it's, a. Uh, it was an interesting thing to have heard, you know, some of that in AA and have heard it in different psychological texts growing up and read it. And then to go through it and actually feel like I was about to die was a whole different, it was just a, it was a much more intense uh, learning experience for me and a lot more powerful as a result, I have to say. Cool. So, Ah, so you discovered, you embraced, you were maybe not embraced yet, but you allowed yeah. things to be uncontrolled. And that's the beginning, you know, the light in a tunnel, you start feeling hopeful that yeah. by your willingness to feel whatever's showing up now will allow more consistent, better feelings in the future. Well, the, I, think, I think the big thing that it was giving me was endurance. Um, you know, I, is the big yeah, when, when I was a wrestler, like, and I'd push myself to run like five miles, eight miles. And I remember each time I ran further, I was like, yeah. And so like, if I have a powerful emotion, I can just sit in it for five hours and not get my ass kicked by it. Ooh, that was really good. <laughs> and so, you know, I'd have, I'd have days where I specifically like, okay, I'm just going to see how many hours I can be uncomfortable without needing to run from it. And that confidence, that endurance, um, that became, instead of, it became my, that became my workout. That ended up being the, and you know, when I was young and I was working out and I was getting better at all these things, I was practicing. I was such a, like I practiced music, I practiced singing, I practiced working out, I practiced being a good, you know, employee. I'd memorize stuff just to keep my brain active, you know, all of these things, none of them got, gave me control over my emotions. But being able to sit with an emotion and not need to distract myself out, that was a muscle that really mattered. And it mattered every day. And every day since I started doing this, I get stronger. And, you know, I have 
uh, when I'm faced with new emotional situations now, I don't, my natural reaction, you know, is, is not okay to pull back. It's like, okay, let's just, first of all, let's test how hot that stove is with, you know, my face. I'll put my face in it and it'll burn for a minute and I'll recover. I'll be like, okay, like I may not need to do that again. Or, but when it comes to having a family, you know, I could have never had a family if I didn't do this because I wouldn't be stable enough. I wouldn't be able to manage myself well enough. And, you know, I have rage issues and all kinds of ancestral stuff passed down um, beyond my compulsivity and, you know, tendency toward addiction besides all that. But the ability to, like, for this, just the simple, the ability to manage a craving for five minutes, like, that's huge. I mean, I don't know a single, I, I was in AA for a couple of years. I don't know a single addict that could handle cravings for you know five minutes like it, it, they had to quickly get out of there but if you can handle a craving for an hour or off and on again throughout the night um the thing that you're addicted to in general it can't have power over you anymore and while we may not have power over it we have something and that's really the thing that that kind of internal strength that I really want everybody to have because it made me really peaceful and calm and confident and mellow and like makes me a good dad and it makes me a, you know, a, an even better husband, I think. And I think those are, those are the things I always wanted for myself growing up. Like I pictured myself when I was a kid um, growing up and being a writer and being a teacher and being into psychology and philosophy and, you know, possibly art in some way. And, you know, cause I was super high scores on everything, SAT, acing and all of that stuff, 4.2 GPA coming out of high school. And so I ended up having all of the things I thought I was going to have in my life, but I didn't take the direction that I thought I was going to take. I thought I was going to go through school and get a job and do all, but no, I wouldn't and buried, just buried myself and came back up with pretty much all the same things I wanted to begin with, which, you know, is kind of interesting how, how that works out. But that's what I needed to be able to teach the kind of psychology that I teach now. Because when you're dealing with bringing a new, a new methodology into such a large system especially with its medical ties and its ties to you know there are a lot of people who work in the field of psychology a lot of people who teach it my mom still teaches it and like i'm talking about changing the textbooks a little bit on a lot of this stuff so without a decade about of experience dealing with it directly i don't think i would have had besides the knowledge and the ability to translate i don't think i would have had the confidence to go forward in the way that I'm going to now and with the goals that I have in mind for it. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think I could have done it any other way. And I, I hope, I know that everyone has had a bottom and I want them to have this particular resource when they're there because I know it works from there. And I know you can see it when you're down there. So that's what I'm you know, excited about going forward. Yeah, I mean, lived experience is more powerful than any theory. 
Right. So that's what I would invite you. You're not a theorist anymore because yeah. you're teaching what you know to be true, yeah. at least for you. And anytime you're teaching something that's true for you, it's true for others to some extent. Right. It, it may not work for everybody, but I know for a fact it worked for at least one person. Right. <laughs> and for a lot of things in psychology, I'm like, I don't know that that's ever worked for one person. I've never seen that work ever. And there's, you know, and so when people find things that don't work, I want them to have someplace else to go. Because when I was a psychologist, when I was in therapy at one time, the guy told me to do cognitive self-talk and I'm like, okay, cognitive self-talk. So I'll just tell myself I don't feel the way I feel and that'll work. And I'm like, that didn't work. And he's like, well, that's it. Nothing else. I'm like, see you next week. <laughs> bye bye. Okay. Yeah. And it's like, oh. so I want people to always have at least someplace else to go if what they're doing at the moment doesn't work. And this, you know, this is the long, dirty way where you get your ass kicked. Right. And that's part of it. And it may not be attractive, but when you've got nothing else to, when everything else hasn't worked, it, uh, yeah. it becomes a little bit more attractive. And so I want when, to have it. I want it to be there. When you're really ready to surrender, it's like, I, I call it, 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 I don't call it, plenty of people call it the, the dark night of the soul. You're just yeah. willing however long I'm going to feel disgusting for and I'm going to pray to die and pray for change and wish myself away, but I'm still here and what's going to come with the next dawn and yeah. That's yeah, a good Phoenix death rebirth. That rebirth is really sweet. <laughs> and you know, what's interesting is that so many of the very influential works, either in medicine or psychology or philosophy, oftentimes come from people who, instead of studying subjects outside of themselves, end up using themselves as the subject yeah. and then sharing their discoveries about what happened. And inevitably, I, I mean, one piece, one work which comes to mind immediately is no Victor Frankl's work. Um, and it's like, wow, you know, yeah. it was, he had nobody but himself to right. look into and to explore and look at the impact it's had. Well, I think, I think there's a good chance that had a large impact on how I ended up going about doing things because I read him and Alan Watts and mm. Carlos Castaneda and Joseph Campbell all of my freshman, sophomore year in high school. Mm -hmm. and like the way that I attacked things mm -hmm. going forward, the, the way that I, you know, I was very um, compulsively passionate about taking in experience and then analyzing it myself, staying, you know, in my mind and taking as many angles as possible. I know that part of that is from his experiences that he shared in that book. It's just a delicious, delicious book. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorites. It's, it remains one of my personal favorites to this day. Absolutely. Yeah. So what now, I'll assume this now that you're, I assume you're not at rock bottom today. I'm not at rock bottom. No. <laughs> right. Okay. So from a, <laughs> From, from any position above rock bottom, are there specific tools, practices, anything you can share about opening up to more hope and, and putting hope into action? <clears throat> hope into action. For some, somehow I wasn't ready for that question. First, I'd say the first, the first thing is um, permission just to be in pain and not, and, to uh, first thing would be permission to be in pain and have whatever you need to do to get through that. Like there are things that I've been through in my life. And if I looked back on where I was, I would have, I think 
maybe others would say, oh, don't use that to get over it. Don't use this. Don't use that crutch. And I'm like, no, 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 go ahead and whatever you need to get through, make sure you get that because that's the base. You got to be like the suffering can get really bad sometimes. And, you know, if you have a crutch, if you take, especially if you're taking meds, because meds get like, meds get a really bad rap these days. And I know for a fact, meds save people a lot of the time and they do other worse things, but like whatever you need to get through on a daily basis, let's take care of that first. Let's give yourself permission to do what you need to, to get through. Um, the, the second thing I, I would say is, um, <clears throat> understanding that every failure, especially for guys, cause we're taught that failures, you know, means we're bad. And, and that if you fail, you can't ever have, you know, a family. If you fail over and over again, you won't get the, the accolades you want. You won't get the job. You won't get this. You won't get that. But in truth, our failures are what make us strong. Like our failures are what give me confidence to tell my kids, no, it's okay. Like, go ahead and mess up. Like, understand that your failures are your strengths. They getting through those, outlasting them and incorporating the lessons that come from it. That is where strength comes from, especially as a man, because we're going to mess up so many things. <laughs> like we just like we're good. everything is just, it's just a car wreck after so the, the, you know, the, the, the sooner like we accept the 30 is a car wreck. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the sooner any man can accept, I'm here to really screw things up. Yes. The easier that will be. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a big, big deal because if we're tiptoeing and trying to not make mistakes, we end up um, losing vitality and we get depressed and then we just withdraw. And that's it. I'm like, right. That's, that's no. that middle, um, you described having everything you wanted, but not being happy. Right. And I find that a lot of people, if, if you, if you never push yourself so far that you never came close to failure, you if you don't risk, yeah. right. if you don't yeah. risk, you can't, you don't, you stop feeling. And that, that is a, that is, you know, death while you're alive. And that's, that's where we see, I think a lot of men withdrawn into depression and having no real way to get out which is, you know, that's heartbreaking for me because I know so many good men who are, who they're right there and they just won't turn toward the people that are close to them to get help or to just to get love because they're so afraid of making mistakes. It's like you're they're supposed to be perfect, perfect. You know, because yeah. you're turning toward them. So, you, you, I mean, you, you mentioned love and, you know, I've the most hopeful feeling that I can kind of think of or experience is like that willingness to like, to, yeah. to, to love and be loved and just, you know, to tell someone I'm in this much freaking pain and have someone else reflect back to you some hope, even if you don't have yeah. it. Right? Absolutely. I mean, for me, like the idea of being in a healthy romantic relationship was one of the things that kept me going because what else would be worth it? What else would be going worth going through all this pain except someone who could hug all the way through all that pain like that's and you know enjoy your company even though you had been through all this stuff that for me was that kept me alive just the idea and i could feel that it was there and i think that may just be luck on on my end but i know that it's there for everybody i know that everybody has someone who cares about them and i know that um even if other people deny it i'm not going to I don't really recognize that. I know everybody's lovable. I just know it. I can feel it. And I couldn't say it otherwise and believe it, um, yeah. even if I wanted to. So, yeah. yeah, I totally agree. And that, and, you know, insisting I'm not lovable is probably another way to control. 
I hate controlling yeah, things, so I'm going to insist that I'm horrible and nobody wants me. So that's how I'll navigate my I life to, to prove that. Anything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I can give myself. Yeah. I remember living that way. Yuck. I, mean, I, I don't even like the memory in my body of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's in there. Yeah. It's there. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. It just kind of triggered some memories in me. Yeah. When, when I went through that also. In fact, I have a very good friend who's, who's going through that right now and trying to help him to just embrace it and accept it and just, you know, get to that stage where he can actually, it's like, you don't have to love yourself now. Just yeah. do all the other stuff. That you know, Eventually you wake up and it's like, oh, yeah, I do love myself. Yeah. There is hope. Stop insisting that you don't or looking for proof why you can't. Or, yeah, because yeah, there's, like, there's always proof. Aside. Yeah, there's right. always proof right. uh, that yes. you're not lovable. And you know what? I'm in a relationship right now. I'm happily in my home. I'm in my living room. I'm happy. I could convince myself of it right now. There is never, there are always enough facts to convince ourselves that we're not lovable. Absolutely. I could, I could probably rail for 10 minutes on how unlovable I am right this second. And that's, you know, that's what happens when we let our depression drive our thought instead of just feeling the depression and disengaging our mind from it. Yeah, Being like, oh, well, I'm really sad right now. And if I let that like drive my mind, I'm going to come up with some really bad ideas. So I'm just going to sit here and feel that. And yeah. It's recognizing something's a feeling, not us. Like I used to think I was depression. Right. That was right. that was all I was about. That was the one thing I was good at. It. It got me attention. I will never let go of this. Yeah. And yeah, but when just oh wait, it's just a feeling. Oh, I am God. experiencing depression. Yeah. Not I am depressed. Right. Again, we don't. People, I, I've never met anyone that goes, "Hi, I'm diabetes. That's all right. I am. That's all. This my whole list. That's my identity." But we'll yeah. but we'll often do that with with emotions. Yeah, we do. And you know, it's just uh, there's a there's a common you know. Um, saying, you know, thoughts create things, thoughts create feelings, thoughts do all that. Thoughts and they do, like, they do, but also feelings create thought patterns. And that's, I think, something that, because the common understanding is that we can control feelings, that we don't talk about that. Because, unfortunately, we can't control feelings. And when feelings arise and take our mind over, then all of a sudden we have this crazy thought train going on, and we believe it. We believe we're thinking it instead of that we just got run over by an emotion, and it hijacked the processing system right. that's you know, spitting yeah. out all this. Yeah. We, we, we think thoughts, and we feel feelings. Yep. And, and I think if, when we try to do that around, that gets mm -hmm. us lots of trouble. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no, there's no extraction between thoughts and emotions. I mean, they, they influence each other all the time. There's always a give and take and back and forth. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a huge, that's just a really deep relationship, not one over another. Yep. Right. yep. <laughs> yeah, like I, when, when, when I, so I was, you know, labeled bipolar all at a really young age and I was suicidal and family history of alcoholism and suicide. So when I started seeing doctors, I just thought, well, I'm just fucked. Like, the, here are all these, here are all these factors, and you, you stand no chance. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, actually, and it took me a long time. It, it took me more than eight years, but it wasn't consecutive of nonstop pain, at least. Right. Um, to, to question that and challenge that and to realize, wait, if I, think, if I choose to think about this, I notice my feelings change. Right. I might go right back to feeling bad, but wait, no, if I choose it again, and that's what really proved to me that I wasn't at the mercy of emotions and thoughts. I could. We have a but ton of power. We have a ton of power to influence. We may not have control, but we have a ton of power. And it, again, to me, that cut this choice. And even if I have to, if I have to choose to feel good 
you know, 30 times uh, in 30, every second. I have to keep making that choice. It's worth it. And, yeah. you know, the, just the millisecond that I stay in some better state than I was proves the value of it. But again, from a depressive, habitually depressive state, the fact that it snaps back is the, the proof that I focused on for a while too. Right. And that, and that is frustrating. But just the minor, just the power, the slow building of empowerment by making those decisions and maybe changing one habit then maybe changing another habit. And then slowly the depression gets smaller. And man, I, it just takes, it takes so long, but every step is worth it. And each little step matters so much in the, in the grand scheme of it, because we're, I, I think you mentioned, you know, we're not, we're having to deal with emotions now because our technology has gotten us to a place where we don't have to stress all day. We are, so it's opened up, you know, I, I call it unleashing the, the human heart as the next stage of evolution. I think it's the first chap, chapter of my next book. Just the idea that, like, yes, we're so safe now that we get to open our heart. And yes, that's beautiful. But the stuff that's in our heart is really scary. So this is the new frontier, and it's horrifying. And having to face our emotions versus not having to face our emotions, having to face them is way more difficult. And, you know, they repress them in the past, they dismiss them, they go sociopathic, they have a few ways of channeling them through, you know, social systems, whether it's, you know, playing football or watching boxing, whatever gets the, you know, violence through for you. Um, We don't have that now, we have to face it. And that's something that in the history of our species has never existed. As far as, as far as I've seen, there may be small pockets of it where people did this um, and lived harmoniously with the world around them, but there's not that much in recorded history. So um, it didn't spread. I, I don't think and now it has an opportunity to take a real foothold. But you know, it makes me think of the hierarchy of needs too. Once, once right. the basics, your survival is set, your view of shelter. Well, now it's, you know, enlightenment and what are my thoughts because i i used to as a kid i swore i was born at the wrong time and right. i thought if i was a pioneer fighting to survive every day i wouldn't depress because i'm right. too busy trying to survive and, every day you wouldn't have been depressed yeah. but now this is the new battle this right. is right. this is the new pioneering i like i really mm-hmm. think of you know when people talk about space as the next frontier i'm like no, 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 no. no man the next frontier is human emotion and being able to form a relationship with it because you know, for for every person that thinks about going to outer space, there are a million people who are suffering emotional things that they think are disorders, but are actually just feelings. They're suffering feelings, which is normal, but we've never been taught to deal with it, nor have we ever had to face it. Right. Yeah. If we yeah. all colonize Mars studying next year, we're just bringing all our baggage and crap to Mars. Right? Yep. <laughs> exactly. You know, the, you brought up a couple of things there. Both of you brought a couple of things that just kind of got me thinking you know one of them about you know recorded history how but you know we need to also ask ourselves how much of recorded history is actually destroyed by the victors of whoever you know you know surfaced yep. and, and so you no know, it's it's it could very well be that there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of stuff that we probably the ancient societies could very well have had very good relationships with their emotions and and you know been very very solid in that regard but of course the historical record is very incomplete however at the same time that's also one of the reasons why i think that certain philosophies and religions have had such great appeal because you know when you can put some put the responsibility of the emotions or what we're feeling on uh you know some higher power that's outside of us 
then versus no taking responsibility for it. It's like, okay, great. You know what? I don't have to face it because it's right. God's will. Offload it. Do it. Absolutely. It's like you put it outside and now, and then of course it, it's the same as resisting anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, when it comes to most, especially the Western re- religions around now, one of the things that I see that they were, that they were definitely harnessing was anger. Mm. There's always, there's always a bad guy. Like there's always the, like we're the chosen people and someone else, like we can go ahead and kill them. Right. And, you know, in all the holy books of that time, there was def- there was genocide and like, that was just okay. Mm-hmm. It was as if they were psychologically seducing people with anger issues to always have someone to release their anger on. And that, anger and fear. that for me, I think is a, is a huge is a huge part of what we need to face in order to become um, sovereign as humans and to get more in a right relation with the divine source that we deal with, whether we're talking about God or, or, you know, universe or whatever, right. Or the universe or whether we're going through religion or whether we're going through spirituality and religionless. Um, however, we, however we move forward, we need to somehow recognize the, need to offset our anger and our dissatisfaction in order to create a clean channel and um, get past a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, I don't want to call it division because that's like a duality thing and it has a lot of stigma and there's a lot of other questions there, but I personally am not allowed to be angry at anyone without being accountable for it. I'm going to be angry all the time, but I'm going to be accountable for it. And that's, that's the thing is there is no emotion that I'm just allowed to um, indulge without conscious attention. So if I'm going to be angry and someone's going to get hurt, I have to pay for that in here and I have to make that right. That's integrity. And without coming to that state where we're accountable for our anger, we can't have integrity and we can't have, you know, a really deep connection with ourselves. So that's vitally important, I think, to that back from anything that organizes us in a direction against other people. Because nobody can make you, nobody can make me feel anything. But a lot of people still deny that. Right. Right. I mean, when we can own our emotions, that's, that to me, that's what the integrity you're speaking of. Ownership is exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. Yeah. Love it. Cool. Wow. Um, I have loved this conversation. Yeah, I know. That's super fun. <laughs> but I want to I uh, get a break and let people, um, you know, what's the best way for people to find you, to get in touch with you? Uh, Vito Mucci is on Facebook. I have um, my book page, which is Coffee for Consciousness, which is, um, that's out. You can go get that book anytime. It is, a, it is literally a textbook. It is 550 pages. And it is, um, you know, not so light reading. Some chapters are lighter than others. And, and, um, but really I did that as a, uh, that was like a centerpiece for, for me to do that first. Cause a lot of the other things I'm going to cover in other books are offshoots of that, that will refer back to it. So that was really a textbook on consciousness that I wanted to read. And since it wasn't there, I wrote it. Um, <laughs> nice. so you can find me on coffee for consciousness on Instagram and Twitter and, um, Facebook. And Vito Mucci is on Facebook. You can find me there. Divine Union TV is on pretty much everything. And that's where a lot of my energy is going now because I, I, like, uh, I like videos. And I, I find that, you know, my 
my lovely Claudia and I have a lot of fun doing them. And so we'll have conversations, not unlike the ones that we just had here with probably a little bit more of me poking fun at her and her poking fun at me. Let's make it clear who, who, who or what Claudia is. Claudia, Claudia Coniglio is my twin flame mate and we live together with our kids and, and uh, her ex-husband lives here too. We all, you know, we all cohabitate and make it work and that involves processing emotion and taking care of ourselves. And so she's, she's, there's a textbook that's needed. Yeah, I, I, I still, I, the processing emotion book is going to be third. Um, I actually did relationships second because I think that's what um, society is moving toward needing right now a little bit more. So that's the book you're working on now or did you say it was complete? I am editing it now. I finished, I finished it. It's going to be about 260 pages or so, but I'm editing. I'm about quarter of the way through editing it right now. So I'm really excited about it and it's all in my head. That's what I was doing all day. Cool. So, and does that have a title? Uh, I'm not telling you. Okay. I haven't yeah. fully decided. I haven't fully decided. I no, still, yep. no. we're, we're still months out on that, but okay. um, it's uh, awesome. I'm very happy. Like reading the first five chapters after not seeing them or anything for a year. I'm very excited about it. But yeah, Divine Union TV is where we are. You can reach us there. And again, I'm pretty reachable on Facebook. I, I just, I, I very rarely, uh, I'm hard to track down. And, and let's see, how do you best like uh, being of service? Is it the, the, the books, but like, how do you engage with people? Or? You know, I, it's different for everybody. Like I do question sessions on my Vito Mucci page probably three, four times a month and people will ask me anything and I'll just sit there for hours and answer questions. Like I love doing that. I love doing videos with Claudia because we can cover really deep topics from experiences we've had in our relationship and do so like with energy and care and like, and playfulness, which I think is just so needed. Everything's so serious now. And it's so difficult to connect with something when it's serious because it seems like it's out there and we need things to be in here for us to be able to work with them. Um, so I, I also, I do shamanic stuff. I've been a healer my whole life, like along with being a psychological passionate theorist guy, like I can heal and I, I'm a shaman and I, so I have some shamanic stuff that I do. And that's really more for people who are friends with me first and then want something like a treatment or some of my growth exercises. I don't coach. Um, Coaching is kind of a part of some of the treatments that I do, but um, having uh, like the depth of a treat treatment is really important for me to know somebody and to work with anything with them going forward. So uh, that's really for friends, but I invite friends like come find me like I'm, I'm there. I'm on Facebook. So cool. Awesome. Um, again, I just, I really, again, want to thank and commend your bravery for walking into the, the hornet's nest. That is sometimes me. And that's how you met me a month ago. That was really also, I, I love how, because that was really big. Yeah, beginning of April was when I was in turmoil, and uh, I'm personally celebrating. This is my third day without tears, which is the first time I've had that stretch in two months. So wow. it's like I'm feeling more hopeful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thank you for being part of that. At the Apio, of course, I always thank you for being part of that. Of course. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely. I've seen a couple Divine Union TV episodes. They are 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 fun and interesting and enlightening. And yeah, I, uh, you and Claudia are really a a, a fun magical pair. Thank you. And, uh, so yeah, I encourage everyone to. She's pretty ma- magical. I'm 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 more of a dork. <laughs> okay. 
which is a great dorky sidekick. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm the dorky sidekick. Every magician needs one. It's okay. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. So uh, is, is there anything else you, you kind of, any parting thoughts, anything you want to share to make sure people, people get from this evening? Goodness. No, I think, I think um, just the, the only parting thought would be that those little successes that we may not validate, that we may not take credit for within ourselves, like, we need every one of those. You can't let one of those go. Like, and we all need you to work with those. We all need everybody. It's going to take all of us. Just one person, two people, 10 people. It's not enough. We need every single time, every single moment when you don't resist something, when you allow something to flow through you, when you stand courageously in the face of your own lack of control and self-doubt. And every moment you do that, we're getting closer to saving the sanity and the care and just the world in general so that we can have feelings and grow as a species into a greater sense of harmony. Every single moment matters. And every single positive thing you do to make that happen is helping all of us. Please, please, please don't give up. <laughs> Amen and to that. The, the notion of validating every little success, to, to, the phrase that just comes to me from that, like those are the embers of hope. They are. Yeah. And we talked about, so yeah, for, for the positive moments, every moment is precious. You know, give yourself the, the pat on the back, the congratulations, the, the yay me's, Apio, that we've talked about often. Absolutely, right? yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And especially for guys, don't, don't be willing to risk the embarrassment of looking like an idiot because you celebrated that you remembered how to tie your shoes today. If you can't find anything else beyond that, right? Everything, e each little thing. Yeah. Right, willingness to feel. I mean, it, I mean for decades... I condemned myself for, uh, for tears of a crying. And now I'm like, oh, good. I've been crying every day for eight days. And then I can right. celebrate. Oh, good. It, it, the three, it's over. I've gone three days straight, you know, as a normal human being functioning. It's like, so <laughs> can celebrate both ends of it all. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Um, so thank you again, Vito. Thank you, Apio. Thank you for everyone that joined us live. Um, whew, if you want to track all the links, they'll be at realmenfeel.org on the blog about this show, episode 61. Real Men Feel will be live again next Tuesday, May 30th, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be joined by Reverend Jody Bailey to talk about the challenge for men of intimacy. And mm -hmm. so Jody is a friend of yours up here. Do you want to tease her she up is. at all more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jody is also well-known uh, here locally as a sex coach. And, you know, we'll be talking about the challenges of intimacy with, uh, we, with men and also celebrating the end of National Masturbation Month. Right. Oh. So, then, yes. so depending when you're listening to it, May is National Masturbation Month. So mm -hmm. if we're still in May... Uh, take some notes it. on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Beautiful. So again, thanks everyone for joining I'm us. I'm gonna tell my kids that. <laughs> Perfect. They're gonna be so happy. Probably, probably no textbook needed for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask them and embarrass them. Beautiful. Keep it, keep it flowing. That. Yeah, <laughs> that's what dads are made for, right? Cool. So again, thanks everyone for joining us here live. Um, whenever you're listening to this, um, keep hope alive, right? Visit realmenfield.org, check us out on Facebook, send us some feedback, and we'll talk with you again soon. Indeed. Be well. Good night, guys. Thank you for listening to Real Men Field. Until next time, visit realmenfield.org 
Join the Real Men Feel group on Facebook and share what you thought of this show. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com and Apio Hunter at apiohunter.com.